ukrića, ti ne vidi nenka mene zustrića. From stories from the East and West, this is Adam Jaworski. And Nitsan Reisner. Stories from the East and West is a show telling you little-known stories that changed our world. Two years ago, two friends set out on a very peculiar journey. Over 33 years ago, on April 26th, we all learned Chernobyl existed. The biggest nuclear accident in the history of humankind turned it into a gruesome ghost town within just a few days. For the first time ever, the Soviet Union admits it has had a nuclear accident, and it's clearly a major one. The world was shocked and panicked. The radioactive cloud moved north, causing substantial damage to the territories of Belarus, and then kept hovering over Europe, frightening its citizens and haunting their imaginations. In many Eastern European countries, people started drinking Lupul's iodine, usually used for disinfection. They tended to stay at home, trying to limit their exposure to the radioactive cloud and its radiation. The Soviets may have been fairly quick to acknowledge the accident because evidence in the form of mild nuclear radiation had already reached beyond the Soviet borders to Scandinavia. A myth was born. A new, invisible threat moved into Eastern Europe. Wojciech, our producer and one of the friends that I mentioned earlier, learned it the hard way. I was born in 1987 and had pretty bad health from day one. Every time we went to a doctor with my mom, the doc would say, you know, Mr. Lekciak, he's a Chernobyl generation kid. Chernobyl generation kid. That was the mantra of my hospital heavy childhood. Fast forward, it's 2018. I'm a radio producer and I meet Zhenia Klimakin, a Ukrainian-Polish journalist. We immediately realized that Chernobyl is the shared memory from our childhoods, even though they were separated by a border and a decade. He spent his early years in Ukraine, where kids and adults would tell all sorts of legends about three-headed cows, mutant people, poisonous rain, etc. They'd explain every disease, bad crop, or whatever anomaly with the Chernobyl fallout. So, we don't even have to talk about it. We already know. We're going to Chernobyl. That walking into the belly of the beast sensation, that was more than enough for us to ignore the forest fires that were happening there at the time and all the warnings of people who tried to put us off. And here we are, driving from a checkpoint to the former city of Chernobyl. First realization, the zone, is now a jungle. It's very calm, empty. Nature took it back. Everything that wasn't made of concrete or metal fell apart. We were told there were lots of animals there and that they roamed the streets during the night. But during the day, it was still. (laughs) 
we spend hours and hours visiting abandoned places. Walking through rubble, climbing empty apartment blocks, walking through thick bushes only to discover we're in the middle of an ex-town or an ex-playground. Everything was covered with a thick layer of suspicious-looking dust. The exclusion zone seemed to live up to its popular image. It was gruesome. It was hollowed out. Truly depressing. We visited all the infamous places. The amusement park that was never open. Abandoned schools. We even passed by the metal enclosure around reactor number 4 and kindly dodged the invitation to come inside. After two days of this, it was obvious that it was going nowhere. We felt like our being there was pointless. We talked to several people who live or work in the zone, but what we heard was very predictable. Hardship, abandonment, living in an excluded place. We were supposed to stay here for two more days and we were having a hard time figuring out what to do next. But then, on our way back to the hostel on the edge of the zone, Zhenya's phone rings. A friend of a friend was calling and he had a friend whose grandpa has lived in the zone for a long time. We take a U-turn and five minutes later, we're knocking on the gate of a little cottage. Hearing that we're friends of a friend's friend is enough for its owner. He heartily welcomes us into his blossoming garden and starts telling us his story. Evgeny Fyodorovich Markevich. I'm a former teacher at the Ukrainian school number one. Later, just after the accident, I found a job as a dosimetrist. How old are you? Oh, that's tricky. I don't quite remember. If I live through August, I'll be 81. If I make it. Long time until my birthday. And this is my grandfather's house. My mom was born here, aunts, uncles, all of whom are dead now. All of them. But I feel best here. There is no better place in the world than here. There's no better place in the world than here? 15 minutes earlier, we couldn't have imagined anybody wanting to live here, even though we knew there were people like him. They're called resettlers, Samoseli in Ukrainian, and they are people from the zone who managed to return to their homes after the disaster, despite a very strict ban. We couldn't really understand why they decided to return to a place that was doomed. What was so precious to them that they were willing to risk their lives? And how did they manage to survive over three decades living in a place said to be lethally contaminated? And here was Evgeny, emanating some sort of inexplicable youthful joy. A few sentences into the interview and he'd made us forget about the overwhelming resignation which felt a few minutes earlier. He was our chance to finally understand it all. It was unexpected. 
1986 nobody expected it. Никто это же не ожидал, конечно. Там совхоз был. There used to be a совхоз, a state-owned agricultural enterprise. They were sowing. It was April. That Saturday we had to go help them. The management of the sovkhoz asked us to sort the potatoes kept in storage clamps, those meant to be planted. We came there while the accident was already happening, as we found out later. We didn't know anything. We were sorting the potatoes with the kids, and in the meantime, Sofko's workers were planting their own potatoes, independently from us. They had a tractor running and were throwing potatoes in the ground. The people knew nothing. When I was working, my brigadier said to me, Go tell those sovkhoz workers not to sit around and have lunch on the grass. But they were already having lunch. The women had put their scarves down on the ground, like they do in a village, with food and stuff, getting their energy back. He said, you go tell them. I said, no, I won't. If I do, I'll be thrown out of the Communist Party tomorrow. Yes, that's how it was. People were totally unaware. Nobody had told them about the disaster. So we finished working around 3 p.m. So I come back home with my son, and I see cars driving on the main street. There were mostly children and seniors sitting in them. You can see the driver, mother, father, grandfather, grandmother and the little kids. And my daughter with my newborn grandson also got on the bus and left Chernobyl. Then I understood how bad it was. Сел, я взял сына, посадил, стоял с коляской. My son was still with me. I had a motorbike with a sidecar. I told him to get in it. I covered him in a blanket, gave him a helmet with a visor so that he could see. And hey, off we went to Bucha. A friend of mine from the army lived in Bucha. Lived. He's dead now. I drove to Bucha. I dropped him off gave him to my friend and told him to take him to my niece. I spent the night there, woke up at 5, and at 8 a.m. on Monday was back to work at the school. The 
Но еще, еще кое-как. There weren't many kids, but there were some. There were normally around 800 students at this school, or even more. Then it became 600. Then on the second day, 500. It was obvious to the eye there were fewer students. The physics teacher Ivan Mikhailovich turned on his dosimeter. Let's see if there is any radiation. There were no other devices except for the meter in the physics class. So the physics teacher turned it on. It made a sound. On Tuesday, the meter goes much faster. On Wednesday, the third day. On the third day, the meter was hissing. It wasn't talking anymore. That was the reaction. That meant it was everywhere. For three days, officially there had been no disaster. I listened to Swedish radio. I had a radio, a good one for that time. And I heard them say there had been an accident in Chernobyl. And what should people do? On the fourth day, the police came by the house, the patrol. Anybody there? They yelled into the bullhorn. They were calling me while I was working on my bike. I was working on the sidecar slowly. I didn't know anything. I thought it'll be fine. I packed my rifles, both of them. I packed clothes because I didn't know where I was going to be, where I was going to spend the night, where I was going to live. Nothing was clear. I packed a pillow, a blanket, warm clothes in case it got colder. That's what I had. Evgeny was forced to leave Chernobyl and moved to a temporary camp way outside of the exclusion zone. Our evacuation center was in Borodyanka. It was similar to Chernobyl. A small town, we lived there. Doctors who worked at the station in Chernobyl came there. One of them, I remember, was a young female doctor. Each time she came from Chernobyl, she was all red. Those were beta burns. I only later understood what it was. She had burned her hands and face. They were basically of a burgundy color. Later, I met more of those people. Guys like that worked with me. A beta burn isn't direct, but it looks like you've been burned by fire. Meanwhile, we had nothing to do. You couldn't go on vacation because work wasn't over. You can't quit. You can't find a new job. Later, one time, I was missing Chernobyl terribly. My soul was burning with desire to see Chernobyl. So we secretly went back a couple of times under the pretense of a work trip. Together with the chemistry teacher, we pretended it was a work trip. 
to see if the school was intact, if all the equipment was there, if the classrooms were okay. So we went like that. Once I even put on a police uniform. You put on a police uniform to get to Chernobyl? Yes, there was a police captain there who I knew from Chernobyl, Vasily Vasilievich. He said, you need to get to Chernobyl? He gives me his cap and a jacket and says, here, take these. Go with the car to get fuel, oil and stuff. You tell them you're one of the helpers. That's how I got in. Soldiers were washing the buildings, roofs and fences. They were writing with chalk what the level of radiation was on those fences, roofs and so forth. They were measuring it with a DP-5, field dosimeter 5, a military device that dated back to World War I. Very old and beat up. And they were going around and washing buildings with fire hoses. Here. They lived here, across the street, in this four-story building. The entire regiment, 1,200 people. They were clearing out the forest next to the station, removing fir needles with rakes. I saw that the guys were almost unprotected. Some kept the mask on their face, others didn't. They were raking those needles. I thought, my God, they are breathing death itself. They were sent there. They had no idea. It would be them who would later cover Reactor 4 with concrete. The guys who lived here, it was interesting how they argued with each other. Vanka, where were you last night? They were all Russian, or mostly from Russia. From the Far East to the Urals and to here. Vanka, where were you last night? I was there, next to that spot. So today you'll go to the place where I was yesterday. And I'll go to the place where you were yesterday. There is a lot of rodents where you were. So you'll reach your limit sooner and get to leave, while I'll be stuck here messing around. They did not understand. They tried to get to the spot where radiation was higher, so that they could get their 25 rem limit sooner and go and leave. Here is something interesting. The newspapers later wrote that there were no documents confirming any soldier had taken part in the disaster cleanup. Nothing. They had a piece of paper that this person was assigned a task. How do I know that? I came into the office, I was looking for some plywood. They had already left by that point, once the reactor was closed. The regiment was dismissed and everyone left. I 
I found the plywood there. I moved it and a heap of badges fell out. Hundreds of them. Here they were. If someone had had this pass, it would always prove he was there. But they didn't give them to any of them. In order to stay in Chernobyl for longer than a few hours, Evgeny had to look for a job there. And he found one. He became a dosimetrist. It allowed him to pass through roadblocks and checkpoints after the zone was sealed and shut. Sneaking in and moving around the zone without it would be absolutely impossible. I didn't officially return. The thing is, we lived on white ships on a river nearby. No one was allowed to live in Chernobyl. It was absolutely forbidden. Passenger ships from the entire Soviet Union were transferred there. We lived on them. We had to get up very early because it's a long way to the station. So sleeping was difficult. You could hear all the steps on the deck. Someone would go have a smoke, someone's nervous, and it's 3, 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning and you still needed to sleep. In a couple of hours you would wake up, have breakfast and get on a bus to the station. I decided I've got a house here, I'm not living on that ship. That's why I quietly, secretly and illegally moved into my house. Unlike most of the resettlers, Evgeny knew exactly what he was doing. Essentially, he was putting a death sentence on himself. He was a dosimetrist. He knew the levels of contamination. He knew Chernobyl, as the central part of the exclusion zone, was never going to be inhabited again. Most of the resettlers moved into distant parts of the zone, almost untouched by the disaster. Evgeny returned to a deserted land. No people, no doctors, no supplies or even running water. We had electricity, but then they turned off the electricity, the water. I would come to the soldiers into the regiment to get water. I would burn tablets of dry alcohol at night because I needed some light in the apartment. I would use one tablet of dry alcohol and it would burn for half an hour. And I would shave like this. I put a pot on the tablet. It would boil and I would shave. Then I would take the bus to Pripyat or to the reactor. My house, like all the houses here, was sealed. There were tags on all of them. Everything was under the control of the local police station. I would tear off this tag, come in at night, light a fire, and in the morning I would brew myself some tea, reattach the tag, and go to the reactor together with the soldiers. Did they try to evict you after 1986? 
Готовый, еще увижу раз, пропуск заберу. Yes, there was a patrol. If I see you just one more time, I'll take your pass, I'll arrest you. Then later, thanks to Kuchma, when he became the president, he issued an order not to bother people who had already returned on their own but to help them so that they could live in their houses. Did other people try to come back? Why did they do it? One day, I saw a man approaching. He had a bag, he was dressed in civilian clothes, and I could see that he didn't work in the zone. Obviously, he snuck in. I passed him and said, Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Where are you going? Home. And I said, yesterday, I heard the radio say that whoever wants to can come back and live here. He just stood there, completely shocked. And then he said, if I'd known that, I would have crawled home on my knees. That's how much people wanted to come back. Why? How to explain the bird who comes back to the same nest after there was a fire a year ago? Or the animal who runs away or flies away, but comes back to the place where it was born? This is a biological process. That's the only way I can explain it. But people are leaving. They are leaving. Some because they die, others because they're sick. You walk down the street and there is no one. It's very quiet. I always remember there was some Belgian or Danish writer, Pale. The book was called Pale. That's the name of a boy. Pale alone in the world. He wakes up, eats some ice cream, he goes outside and everything is the same. But there isn't a single person. And it was good. A good little book. I used to read it to my son. I always remember Pale, because I'm just like that Pale. My wife and I go together to the church or fishing in the morning with our fishing rods, and there is no one. No cars, no people, it's just great. <laughs> I go fishing, I prepare the firewood, that's my morning exercise. An axe in my hands and off I go. I have to repair the boat with the potatoes, help here and there, whitewash and paint the house. I've got so much work, I barely have enough time to do it. I am happy with my life. When I feel well, I am very happy. And when my heart starts aching, it's rather shitty. But everything is great. My wife is a wonderful person. She's very good. 
When the disaster happened, I was 49. I was still a man in his prime. Now I'm in my 90s. Can you imagine that? I would never have thought. The Japanese were making a lot of predictions about us. They said that Kiev, and especially those who were in the zone, they would live no more than five or maybe up to 15 years. That these people were all doomed. And you see, 32 years have passed, and I don't think anyone here died from radiation, except for the firefighters and miners. Those were heroes, unfortunate people. Can you imagine never having returned here? No, I, I can't imagine. I wouldn't be alive right now. I simply wouldn't have survived without Chernobyl. Yes, yes, I didn't even know I could love Chernobyl so much and have such nostalgia for it. But I couldn't live anywhere else. And I didn't want to. I don't want to. All's well. I have no regrets. I feel fine here. No, I don't want to. I don't regret it. Chernobyl is Chernobyl. Chernobyl is Chernobyl. This episode of Stories from the Eastern West was produced by Move Me Media for Culture PL and hosted by Adam Zhuavsky and me, Nitsan Reisner. It was reported and written by Wojciech Alekszak and Zhenia Klimakin. Wojciech also did the music and sound design with additional guitars by Michał Przerwa Tetmeyer. We'd like to thank KCRW's Nick White for production assistance on this episode. Huge thanks also goes to Charles Maines and Maxim Krivoshiev for delivering a great English voiceover for Yevgeny. If you happen to be a Russian speaker, you can find a link to the original version of this episode in the show notes. And if you want to learn anything else about the story you just heard, the show notes can be found in your podcast app or on the Stories from the Eastern West website at sftew.com. Make sure to subscribe or check our feed next month. On the last day of August, we'll be releasing a story about another place that changed Europe forever. We'll take you to the Gdańsk shipyard, the location where Solidarność, the movement behind the 1989 democratic revolutions, started a decade earlier. Hear you next week.